episode 88 of the Truth Quest podcast, The Truth About Secession, Part 2. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on social media and topics such as secession, abortion, the State of the Union address, capitalism, or the United States at War comes up, please share the topic-specific TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. Episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean.com, and most recently, ThinkSpot. The video version of the podcast are available on YouTube, BitChute.com, and Brighteon.com. If you are listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment and scroll down on the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest podcast patronage page. All donations will be used to drive awareness of the podcast through Facebook and Twitter advertising. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for details. And finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. In episode 87, I introduced you to the concept of secession. We reviewed current and past secession movements and looked at why it is necessary and good. I offered four reasons, three of which I covered in episode 87, decentralization, self-determination, and competition. The fourth, which is where we will start today, is the idea that smaller is better. Following that, we will discuss how secession is justified, and I will do my best to dispel most of the common objections to the concept of secession. So, the fourth reason that secession is necessary, why it is good, is that smaller is better. Ryan McMakin put it this way, quote, Fortunately for humanity, the trend in the world today is towards smaller states. As numerous scholars have noted, the average number of states in the world is larger now than in any other time in recent centuries, end quote. So the bottom line is, smaller countries have to cooperate in order to survive. A small country that lacks a diverse economy or a large agricultural sector will quickly find itself running out of food, workers, and raw materials. A smaller country without close ties to other nations could find themselves in a very dangerous geopolitical position. Given that, you likely would not be surprised to know that studies have found that small countries tend to be more open to international trade than larger countries. Smaller states tend to seek tax competition, i.e. lower rates. They do that in order to attract capital. Examples include the Irish setting some of the lowest corporate tax rates in Europe or in the world, the Baltics and the Slavics went for flat taxes. Iceland became a financial center. Who saw that coming? Think about the small island nations in the Caribbean. Many of them are tax havens. Think about how for decades Switzerland was known as a country where your banking secrets would be kept secret. Think about Puerto Rico as it tries to attract new residents, offering incredible tax advantages to folks who decide to move there. There is evidence to suggest that small states can achieve higher growth rates and higher standards of living. Economist Gary Becker back in 1998 wrote, quote, Smaller states are actually richer than other states in per capita GDP. Microstates have, on average, higher income and productivity levels than small states and grow no more slowly than large states, end quote. Other researchers point out that the quality of life in European microstates like Luxembourg, Liechtenstein, and San Marino tend to be the highest in the world. What explains this? Well, you may argue that the reason smaller states are more economically successful is because they are more stable politically. Well, that observation would be, shall we say, astute. As I like to do, let's ask some questions to arrive at an answer. 
why do you think smaller states tend to be more stable politically? Could it be because the people are closer to their elected officials? They live in their neighborhood. They see them at the grocery store. At the time of the constitutional ratification, the largest city in the United States was Philadelphia, which had 30,000 residents. And America had, what, 3 million people total? Consider the perspective the Founding Fathers had when laying out the rules of the road, the Constitution. David D'Amato, writing for Fee.org, explains, quote, For freedom to prevail, governments must remain both small and close to those whom they govern, accountable and responsive, rather than distant and opaque. Decisions that affect the citizen ought to be made in close proximity to the citizen, within reach, as it were, end quote. Does that sound anything like the United States today? Is the federal government small and close to those who governs? Is it accountable and responsive? Or is it distant and opaque? Switzerland's Canton system is really impressive. They push most decisions down to the local level. With a population of 8 million, they have 26 sovereign states, the smallest of which has 15,000 residents, the largest 1 million. The average is 300,000. As Thomas Jefferson wrote in a letter to Gideon Granger in 1800, quote, Our country is too large to have all of its affairs directed by a single government. Public servants at such a distance and from under they of their constituents must, from the circumstance of distance, be unable to administer and overlook all the details necessary for the good government of the citizens, and will invite the public agents to corruption, plunder, and waste, end quote. So Thomas Jefferson thought, the country was too large back then. The population has grown by over a hundred times since then, and the number of states in the Union is three times higher than it was back then. I think political stability is a worthy goal that is unattainable in a nation with the sheer size, both territorially and populationally, as the United States. I'm not sure populationally is a word, but I think you get what I mean. A 2014 report from Credit Suisse titled The Success of Small Countries concluded, Quote, if we add education, healthcare, and intangible infrastructure as measures of success, we find that small countries do proportionally very well. For example, with respect to the UN's Human Development Index, which combines GDI per capita, education, and health metrics, small countries make up over half of the world's top 30 countries. End quote. But as you can imagine, the problem is countries don't like getting smaller. Again, quoting Ryan McMakin from Mises.org, who has done a ton of writing on this subject. He said, quote, It is not a coincidence the world's most powerful states, Russia, United States, China, are those that control large populations, large economic centers, and large geographic areas with sizable frontiers. Greater size means a larger frontier that can act as a physical buffer between the state's enemies and the state's economic core. Physical size is also helpful in terms of pursuing self-sufficiency in both energy production and agriculture. More land means greater potential for resource extraction and acreage devoted to food production. From the state's perspective, these activities are good things because they can be taxed or expropriated. In terms of population size, state control over large populations means more human workers to tax and potentially more highly productive urban workers. Historically, at least, Larger populations also provided personnel for military uses. More tax revenue, which in turn means greater military capability. Naturally, state organizations are not inclined to abandon these advantages lightly, even when secession movements express a desire that they do so, end quote. 
As Mises himself observed, freedom in trade negates the need for a state to acquire more of the world's wealth through militaristic or imperialistic methods. So let's turn our attention to how secession is justified. David D'Amato, again writing for Fee.org, wrote, The right to secede is in fact an important natural right and an essential protection against tyrannical government. So essentially, natural law or natural rights are considered rights endowed by our Creator, as echoed in the Declaration of Independence. In other words, they are natural. They are there for everyone, regardless of their situation or life circumstances or where they live. These rights cannot be taken away by any government. If you prefer, these are God-given rights, and as is often said, what God gives, man cannot take away. As Judge Napolitano said, channeling Thomas Aquinas, quote, There are areas of human behavior for which we do not need a government permission slip in order to make free choices in those areas. Things that cannot be taken away by majority vote, or by legislation, or by the command of the president, unless, of course, you voluntarily agree to give them up yourself, end quote. Let's think about the United States federal government in these terms. The federal government has such profound disdain for our natural rights that they pass gun control legislation. They endorse the NSA spying. They allow the FISA court to exist. They have killed American citizens overseas via drone strikes. They implement asset forfeiture laws. Talk about forgetting the presumption of innocence or the right to due process. All of that's out the window when it comes to the asset forfeiture. They spend our money. Hell, they spend more than our money. We have trillions of dollars in debt. Natural rights include not having your stuff stolen from you, something the federal government does on a regular basis. Natural rights are owned by individuals, so you cannot surrender someone else's rights. Think about that. Natural rights are owned by you, and someone else cannot surrender those rights. The violation of this particular principle, surrendering other people's rights, is the pillar of the National Democratic Party's platform. Natural rights equate to the presumption of liberty, meaning we are self-directed. We make our own choices. The rights that we do not surrender to the government, we retain for ourselves. We touched on this in the last episode. Remember what two words I told you to think about whenever the topic of secession comes up? Self-determination and decentralization. The one legitimate job of government is to protect the natural rights of those in which they govern. Instead, the U.S. federal government assaults our natural rights. Contrary to what you may think, the United States is not one nation under God, and it is not indivisible. It's not a single entity at all. It's a collection of sovereign states. The Declaration of Independence speaks of, quote, free and independent states. And what Jefferson means by states in the Declaration is places like Spain and France and Virginia and Massachusetts and North Carolina. See, individual states ratified the Constitution. Why did it need to be ratified? Because the Constitution is a contract or a compact, and the states had to essentially sign the contract through ratification. So the states agreed to this contract as written, and as with any contract, if it is breached, if the contract gets breached, the states are no longer a party to that contract. It's as simple as that. That's at the heart of secession. The 13 separate sovereign colonies, i.e. the states, willingly join the Union as separate sovereign entities, and they can willingly withdraw if they want. The Constitution would never have been ratified if the people of the states thought they were stuck with the Union if the federal government got out of hand. If you've never heard about the compact theory, although I'm not sure why it's called a theory, it's actually a fact. If you've never heard about the compact fact, 
if you have never heard about this or you do not find it convincing, consider this. The Constitution required nine states to ratify it for it to go into effect. With New Hampshire being the ninth state to ratify in June of 1788, the nine states to ratify the Constitution seceded from the Union that they had created more than 10 years ago before with the Articles of Confederation. This left the remaining four states with three options. They could either join them in, under the new Constitution, they could create their own new Union with the four of them, or they could stay under the Articles of Confederation. Still need more convincing? Why do you think the Constitution repeatedly refers to the states in the plural? Why is the country called the United States of America? Could it be that the sovereign states are united? Need more convincing? How about Alex de Tocqueville, the French historian who wrote extensively about America? He observed that the states voluntarily joined the Union. Thomas Jefferson spoke favorably about secession on multiple occasions, as did John Quincy Adams and many other founding fathers. Historian Tom Woods said, quote, Secession is a logical consequence of the system that was established by the founding fathers, end quote. Virginia, New York, and Rhode Island included rescission clauses when they joined the Union. That seems to point directly to secession. In one final piece of evidence, Britain acknowledged 13 sovereign states in the Treaty of Paris. Again, not one nation under God, indivisible. 13 sovereign states. All of this history and common sense is lost on many modern Americans. We simply are not taught history anymore. And so when topics such as secession come up in conversation, it's easy to dismiss, more, more out of ignorance than out of fact-based historical perspective. Here's another piece of evidence for you. In episode 19, The Truth About Elections and Washington, D.C., I explained that the federal government is the creation of the states. It is subordinate to the states. I had this to say. The rightful remedy is for the states to unapologetically assume their proper role under the Constitution, that of a principle. The federal government is the subordinate agent to the states. See, without the states, the federal government does not exist. The states created the federal government, and presumably the states can annul and or ignore it. As Ron Paul once said, we will soon have de facto secession. The federal government has gone too far, and the American people are slowly waking up and recognizing it. The hand of the states has been forced. They must continue to nullify and ignore federal laws and regulations. What kind of gullible suckers are we to allow the federal government, which has a 100% failure rate, to dictate to us such things as light bulbs and health insurance that we are permitted to buy, or the education of our children, or our labor, environmental, drug enforcement, and gun control laws? It is the same federal leviathan that operates bankrupt government-sponsored enterprises such as Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. It funnels billions of dollars to bankrupt entities such as the U.S. Postal Service, Amtrak, and during the Obama years, to green energy companies. During the Bush and Trump years, it's the defense industry that benefits from the flow of funds. The federal government runs a pitifully inadequate health care system at the Veterans Administration. It throws billions of dollars at too-big-to-fail financial companies. It spies on us. It searches us at the airports. It harasses us under the threat of jail and fines to pay our taxes. It wastes billions of dollars. It borrows trillions. It's sick and it's disgusting. Are we going to continue to be at the mercy of an incompetent and defective Federal Reserve whose track record, even when measured against its own mandate, is woeful? Are we going to allow it to continue to thwart efforts to open their books to a congressional audit? Are you comfortable with leaving future generations holding the bag of an over $20 trillion national debt 
over $100 trillion when you include unfunded liabilities for entitlement programs. James Madison said the states are duty-bound to interpose or intervene when the federal government goes awry. There are two obstacles to the states assuming their constitutional power. The first is the education and engagement of the general public. The majority of Americans pay more attention to the air pressure in their tires on their car than they do to politics and public policy. So we must awaken our fellow citizens from their apathy coma. Secondly, the states must wean themselves off of the federal funding teat. On average, states receive 30% of their revenue through various forms of federal funding. Once the states are financially self-sufficient, they will no longer be susceptible to the extortion or coercion or blackmail that the federal government relentlessly employs against them. One radical idea I've heard over the years is for states to collect both the federal and the state income taxes and withhold the distribution of the Fed's portion until things change. This country fought a revolution to rid itself of a tyrannical central power that did not represent the people. The states signed a contract, the Constitution, with the understanding that all power not specifically delegated in that contract to the federal government would reside with them. For over 200 years, the pendulum has swung in the wrong direction as the power of the federal government has grown and that of the states has diminished. So let's shift gears and talk about the arguments against secession. There are several typical responses to discussions about secession. They include simply dismissing the idea. Uh, often you get name-calling, you know, what are you talking about, or the, they call it a pie-in-the-sky idea, saying secession is next to impossible. Or folks who have some understanding of the topic will say something like, the Supreme Court has already ruled on this. And there is this strange Article One, Section 8 argument against secession. But the favorite refrain is that secession is racist. So let's take a look at each of these claims individually. The first response, that of dismissing the idea or resorting to name-calling, is born out of ignorance. Now, it's ignorance, mind you. And I'm not calling people stupid. I'm calling them ignorant because they've never thought about the concept. And if, and if they have, they've been marinating in historically ignorant history. For example, Ben Stein, the famous actor-slash-commentator, he ridiculed the idea of secession in an article entitled Secession is for Morons. He said, the idea that a state could secede was what led South Carolina to proclaim secession as soon as Lincoln was elected in 1860. In short order, South Carolina was joined in this strange idea by Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Louisiana, Texas, Florida, Arkansas, Tennessee, North Carolina, and Virginia. If it had not been for Lincoln's arresting state officials, Kentucky and Maryland would have seceded too, and that would have been the end of the USA as we know it, end quote. See, this kind of intellectually lazy and historically inaccurate commentary is what is accepted as mainstream commentary on the idea of secession. The second response is that secession would be impossible. Now, I don't necessarily disagree with this sentiment, because think about it. Logistically, it would be very, very difficult. Legally speaking, we would be in uncharted territory. Think about the different regulations from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Think about all the loose ends, state budgets, criminal codes, immigration laws. The list of obstacles to secession are no doubt daunting. Can you imagine the lawsuits and threats from D.C.? It would be ugly. How would the seceded states bear their portion of the national debt? How would goods flow between states? Would you need a passport to come and go? You would need agreement between the remaining states. Maybe a constitutional convention? But just because something seems difficult does not mean it's unworthy. An often cited argument against secession is the strangely ignorant Article I, Section 8 argument. They argue that the Constitution does not specifically say a state can leave the Union. Now remember, this is the section of the Constitution that describes what the general or the federal government can do 
or put another way, what the states cannot do. But this argument can be destroyed with three words, the Tenth Amendment, which says all powers not granted to the general government were left to the states. So in other words, since the Constitution does not say you cannot secede, they can secede. As I have mentioned previously, the idea that the Union is considered some kind of sacred entity, one nation under God, indivisible, leaves people with the impression that something like secession equates to blasphemy or treason. Again, historical ignorance reigns supreme. Most debates against secession devolve into a discussion about the Civil War and eventually ends up in name-calling, racist, etc. You know, because the state tried to secede over slavery. Lincoln decided to invade and made things right. This is kind of the Ben Stein argument. The problem is the South were not aggressors. They were not the invaders. They wanted to be left alone. They wanted to secede. Lincoln, however, wanted to prevent secession and preserve the Union regardless of the costs. 600,000 dead? The economy of the South destroyed? Was it worth it? If seceding was such an egregious offense, why don't we hear these same people displaying outrage over the northern states' contemplation of secession over the fugitive slave laws? See, they opposed those laws because they felt like they violated their conscience. They did not feel it was right to return slaves to their owners if they were caught in the North, having escaped the South. I mean, if secession is this despicable concept, then it should be applied across the board. But as with most things in American politics, ideology cuts deeper than principles. Finally, we come to the Supreme Court. What if the omnipotent Supreme Court rules against secession? End of story, right? Well, not exactly. As we have already established in this episode, the states, that is, the principal, the creator, cannot be told what to do by the federal government, its agent, the created. It would be like allowing a child to dictate to his parents what they can and cannot do. It's absurd. In Texas v. White, 1869, Chief Justice Chase, writing for the majority, identified two routes by which the states could peacefully secede. Quote, there is no place for reconsideration or revocation that is, of Texas's entry into the Union, except through revolution or through consent of the states, end quote. Normally, I would spend some time on the court's opinion like I did in episodes 45 and 46 where I discussed the truth about Roe v. Wade, but to be honest, I simply cannot stand how the Supreme Court is viewed by the American people. This opinion is yet another glaring example of what I loathe about the Supreme Court. Where the hell did Chase come up with the criteria he presented in that majority opinion? One that will set precedent for another case on a similar issue. He made it up. It's not in the Constitution. That's why these things are called opinion, not decisions, not rulings. They're not dictates. Because these people that comprise the Supreme Court make shit up all the time. It's absurd that we sit around every summer waiting to hear the latest Supreme Court opinions, like God himself is speaking to the American people. Everyone walks around saying the Supreme Court said this, Supreme Court said that. Who gives a shit what the Supreme Court says? Von Mises argued the secession would take care of the problem of the cram down from on high, i.e. five people in black robes sitting on the Supreme Court. He said, quote, rather than trying to get people of one's own ideological persuasion on the Supreme Court, its power should be rolled back and minimized as far as possible, and its power decomposed into state and even local judicial bodies, end quote. In other words, he was advocating for decentralization, which is at the heart of secession. Five people in robes should not be able to dictate to 330 million people. 
So I think I'll close these two episodes on secession with a quote from Donald Livingston, who is the founder of the Abbeville Institute, which is devoted to the study of Southern culture and political ideas. So you can imagine they've talked a lot about secession in this institute. He said regarding secession, quote, We must work to remove the moral and philosophical prejudice against the very idea of secession. America was born in secession. Secession is essential to the idea of self-governing people, and until 1865 was widely considered an option available to an American state in all parts of the Union. But secession short of national sovereignty is also possible. Parts of cities and counties may secede. A part of a state may secede and form another state, as 27 counties in Northern California proposed to do in 1992. The mere discussion of the merits of such proposals, whether or not they secede, will serve to detoxify the idea of secession and reawaken in Americans the long, slumbering notion of self-government induced by the opiate of the Lincolnian ideology of a modern, unitary American state." End quote. If you are looking for an easy-to-read reference guide to have on your desk or bookshelf that covers many of the topics tackled here on the TruthQuest podcast, grab a copy of my book, Critical Thinking, spelled with a P like Peter. The subtitle is The Lost Art of Critical Thinking and Common Sense in Politics and Public Policy. In it, I tackle dozens of public policy issues from a pragmatic and logical perspective. It's available at Amazon and anywhere books are sold. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for more information. And as always, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast.